hear me? Okay. Good evening. Welcome. It's nice to see such a full house here. I'm Rose Styron. I'm co-chair of the Freedom to Write Committee, and I've been asked to introduce Margaret Randall and to introduce the evening. Uh, as I think most of you probably know, PEN is an international organization of independent writers. It was founded in 1921, and we have chapters, I believe it's in something like 55 countries, uh, two and three chapters in some of those countries. And uh, I'm going to read you just a little chapter from the Penn Charter to explain what it is. Its members are pledged to defend the Penn Charter, which reads in part, literature, national though it be in origin, knows no frontiers, and should remain common currency between nations in spite of political or international upheavals. Members of Penn should at all times use what influence they have in favor of good understanding and mutual respect between nations. They pledge themselves to do their utmost to dispel race, class, and national hatreds and to champion the ideal of one humanity living in peace in one world. Penn stands for the principle of unhampered transmission of thought within each nation and between all nations, and members pledge themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong. Those of you who are here tonight know that Margaret Randall is suffering uh, one of the kinds of repression, if not several kinds. Uh, we in the Freedom to Write Committee, which is particularly sponsoring this, uh, fight against censorship and the restriction or repression uh, and physical brutality or uh, psychological brutality that we feel is visited upon writers by uh, their governments, by the citizens of their countries. And Margaret uh, has been uh, prevented from regaining the citizenship of the country in which she was born. She was born in New York City, grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and spent almost half her life living and working in Latin America, most notably in Mexico, Cuba, and Nicaragua. She's a writer, a very good writer, and a photographer, a very good photographer, and she teaches right now American and women's studies at the University of New Mexico. She's been traveling all over the country, teaching and speaking in the last year. Her most recent books are Sandino's Daughters, about women in Nicaragua, Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, about the Christian movement in that country, Risking a Somersault in the Air, Conversations with Various Nicaraguan Writers, Albuquerque, Coming Back to the USA, which is a long prose work about the process of having come home, and the Coming Home Poems. A new book, this is about incest, 
will be published by Firebrand Books in April. Margaret Randall is currently fighting an immigration case in which, under the ideological exclusion clause of the 1952 McCarran-Walter Act, which some of you will remember was passed over President Truman's veto in the McCarthy days, but is still on the books. The government is trying to deport her exclusively because of her ideas and the ideas expressed in her writings. Since Penn began to work on Margaret Randall's case, we have taken many public actions on her behalf. In 1985, E.L. Doctorow, Carolyn Forche, Denise Levertoff, Adrian Rich, and other writers cabled the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service. After the INS found her deportable, Penn joined in a lawsuit against the Justice Department. The writers who also joined in the lawsuit individually were Norman Mailer, Arthur Miller, Tony Morrison, Grace Paley, Rose Styron, William Styron, Kurt Vonnegut, and Alice Walker. In January 1986, during the International Pen Congress in New York, which some of you will remember, Penn gathered the signatures of 220 writers from all over the world on a petition to the INS on Margaret's behalf. During the spring, Norman Mailer and Susan Sontag wrote separately to INS Judge Martin Spiegel. Kurt Vonnegut testified in August before a Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee in Washington about the pernicious effects of the McCarran-Walter Act, particularly citing Margaret Randall. We've been working uh, to get various parts of the McCarran-Walter Act abolished for some time now. Later that month, Judge Spiegel found her deportable. And in September, Penn wrote to Attorney General Edwin Meese. Among those signing that letter were Hortense Kalischer, John Irving, and Francis Fitzgerald. On October 25th, Hortense Kalischer's piece on the Randall case was printed in the New York Times and just this week, on December 5th, Gay Talese appeared on Good Morning America to speak on Margaret Randall's behalf. Today, Penn is holding an event to honor Margaret and to assist her in her ongoing struggle to win the right to live in the country of her birth. We're all concerned with it, and we're all supporting Margaret. And I'll turn you over to Margaret now. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thank you all for coming. I feel like I'm, I'm getting a split personality. I hope that <laughs> people on both sides of the room can hear me. I'm going to speak a little later about this case from the point of view of someone actually uh, going through it but I'd like just to read a few poems to you before other people on the panel speak about different aspects of the case in more detail, and then I'll sort of come in at the end with 
a more personal view. I'd like to read just a, a couple of poems, two or three. These poems, in one way or another, come very much out of the experience of living through this case. Although the first one, The Gloves, was written before I knew there was a case, and it has more to do with just the process of returning to one's country after a long time away, the process of looking at one's life and uh, somehow that inevitable evaluation, what have we done, what remains to be done, that kind of thing. This is called The Gloves. Yes, we did march around somewhere, and yes, it was cold. We shared our gloves because we had a pair between us. And a New York City cop also shared his big gloves with me. Strange, he was there to keep our order, and he could do that, and I could take that back then. We were marching for the Santa Maria Rhoda, a Portuguese ship whose crew had mutinied. They demanded asylum in Goulart's Brazil, and we marched in support of that demand in winter in New York City, back and forth before the Portuguese consulate, Rockefeller Center, 1961. I gauge the date by my first child, Gregory was born late in 1960. As I gauge so many dates by the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and I feel his body now again close to my breast, held against cold to our strong steps of dignity. That was my first public protest, Rhoda. Strange you should retrieve it now in a letter out of this love of ours alive these many years. How many protests since that one? How many marches and rallies for greater causes, larger wars, deeper wounds, cleansed? or untouched by our rage. Today, a cop would hardly unbuckle his gloves and press them around my blue-red hands. Today, a baby held to breast would be a child of my child, a generation removed. The world is older, and I in it am older, burning slower, with the same passions. The passions are older, and so I am also younger for knowing them more deeply and moving in them pregnant with fear and fighting. The gloves are still there in the cold, passing from hand to hand. When we talk about this case, it's frequent that we talk about all the people 
for whom the ideological exclusion clause of McCarran-Walter has meant that they could not come into this country or could not be heard here. And I think that that's very important that we do that. In my case, I've also thought that under attack, aside from myself, are the women whose voices have appeared in the pages of my books. Because I have written essentially about women for the past 15, 16 years, women in Cuba and Nicaragua, in Peru and Mexico, women in what we generally call the third world, where most women can neither read nor write, and their stories remain untold if no one listens to them. So this poem, which was written very much after the, the struggle around, the struggle with INS began, is about those women and about my sense that they are also under attack. The poem is called Under Attack. Listen, these voices are under attack. Ishmaela of the dark tobacco house, grandma, a maid her lifetime of winters, granddaughter of slaves. Straight to my eyes, my mama used to tell me one of these days the hen's gonna shit upwards. And I'd look at those hen's asses, wondering when will that happen <laughs> when we push the big ones down and pull the little ones up. For Mama, Papa, and Blackie, she wrote on the poem she left to say goodbye. Nicaragua, 1977, disappear or be disappeared. Dora Maria, whose gaze her mother always knew, she trembled at her first delivery, then took a city fearlessly. Rain and the river rising, Catalina chases her ducks that stray, and my months she cries on that platform with poles, a house to do over and over. My months gone in the hospital at Iquitos and the full moon bringing a madness to my head. Her body is light against my touch, a woman's voice parting such density of rain. Swan, my cold hand in hers, evokes the barracks. Soldiers who were our brothers, night after night, village by village, Quang Tri, 1974, gunfire replaced by quiet conversation, the work of women. Swan's history, too, is under attack. Dominga brings her memory down from the needle trade, Dom Pedro, her own babies dead from hunger. I want to tell you my story, she says, leave it to the young ones so they'll know we are rocking, we are laughing. This woman who rescued the flag at Ponce, Puerto Rico, 1937, known by that act alone until a book carries 
her words, her voice. I bring you these women. Listen, they speak, but their lives are under attack. They too are denied adjustment of status in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. And I'll end with a short poem, which um, very much comes out of this experience of this case. It was written after many, many questions by news people especially, uh, who always seem to ask you, how do you feel? How, how does this make you feel? And depending on who, who you're speaking to, you try to pull out your most politically correct answer to that question. And then someone inevitably asks you, but how do you really feel? <laughs> and I don't really believe that the two answers are incompatible. I believe that they're really part of the same answer. But this was a poem written to try to explain at least what I was feeling at that time, which was October 1985. This poem is called Immigration Law. When I ask the experts how much time do I have, I don't want an answer in years or arguments. I must know if there are hours enough to mend this relationship, see a book all the way to its birthing, stand beside my father on his journey. I want to know how many seasons of chamisa will be yellow, then gray, green, and yellow, light again. How many red cactus flowers will bloom beside my door? I do not want to follow language like a dog with its tail between its legs. I need time equated with music. Hours rising in bread, years deep from connections. The present always holds a tremor of the past. Give me a handful of future to rub against my lips. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from uh, David Cole, who is <coughs> Margaret's attorney. He's a staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York City. Uh, the Con Center for Constitutional Rights is involved in many interesting cases, especially in the last couple of years, many of which have to do with freedom of expression. In 1984-85, he clerked for Judge Arlen Adams of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Mr. Cole is a 1980 graduate of Yale University and a 1984 graduate of Yale Law School. He has previously published articles on civil rights and related topics in the Loyola of Los Angeles Law Review, the Yale Law Journal, and numerous other journals. And Margaret said at dinner tonight that it was David who kept her going 
So David, tell us how you keep her going. I think it's more Margaret that keeps me going. She certainly keeps me busy. Um, I'm Ari Nair is going to speak about the McCarran-Walter Act generally, and um, some of this is premised upon your understanding of the McCarran-Walter Act generally. Um, but I will um, briefly say, and I, I'm sure a lot of people know, but for, for those who don't, the McCarran-Walter Act is a, an act passed in uh, 1952 which allows the United States to exclude from this country and to deny um, the ability to remain here those aliens who are uh, communists, who are anarchists, who are members of affiliates or subsidiaries of the Communist Party or an anarch anarchist party, um, who are homosexual, um, and those who advocate the international economic or governmental doctrines of world communism. Um, the latter, the last provision is the one um, on which um, Margaret Randall is being uh, told that she has to leave. The, in many McCarran-Walter Act situations, it's be, the act is being applied to someone who wants to come into this country from outside. And the procedures um, to protect those people are virtually non-existent so that the government is permitted to keep people out frequently without explaining the basis for their decision, without any judicial review, or if there is judicial review, the most minimal uh, level of scrutiny. The unusual thing about Margaret's case is that because she's here, um, and because different procedures apply to people who are here as, op as opposed to people who are still outside of the country and want to come in, they have to give reasons. They have to provide evidence. They have to go before a court and they have to explain why Margaret Randall should be kicked out of the country because her writings advocate the doctrines of world communism. So this gives us an opportunity um, to, to see how the act works at the level of local bureaucrats, which is where the decisions most frequently are first made and often um, cannot be reviewed. The INS has held Margaret deportable on the basis of the political content of her writings. And I'd like to turn, um, turn the tables on the INS a little bit and analyze the political content of their writings, of their, their reasons and rationales for saying that Margaret Randall no longer should be permitted to live here. Um, briefly, what Margaret, Margaret is, is an alien who, uh, she's a Mexican citizen who has come into this country um, as a visitor and, and decided that she wanted to stay and so applied for what's called permanent resident alien status or a green card. Normally, if you have um, the requisite family ties in this country, um, you are granted a green card as a matter of course. Margaret has not been granted a, a green card as a matter of course. And the reason is, is that one of the hoops through which you have to go before you can get a green card is that you have to show that you're not excludable under the McCarran-Walter Act. So that's where the McCarran-Walter Act comes in. 
Now, there are the, the INS has, has sort of made official statements or, or come down with its rationale on three uh, different occasions in Margaret's case. The first um, was uh, an INS district director in El Paso, Texas, named Al Juni, who, who made the decision to deny Margaret permanent resident status the first time. You, as an alien, when you're here, you apply for it to a district director. He has the, he has the authority to grant or deny it. If he denies it, you then go through um, a whole um, deportation proceeding. Um, and that's where Margaret is now. The district director um, on October 2nd, 1985, denied Margaret permanent resident status um, on the basis of his examination of five of her books. Um, she's written about 40 books, but he chose five to look at. Um, his decision, which is about seven pages long, consists of about four pages of selective quotes from, from Margaret's writings in which he, um, he, she does such things as criticize our intervention in Vietnam, criticize this country's treatment of blacks, criticize the National Guard's action at Kent State. These are, many of these are writings from the 60s. Um, refers to the United States as, quote, the enemy um, in a book about Vietnamese women and written primarily from the perspective of Vietnamese women, um, and talks positively about Cuba. Those are the, those are the, the, the that's the basic gist of the, of the quotes. He couldn't quite fit anything that Margaret had said or written into advocating the doctrines of world communism. Um, at least he didn't feel that he could. But he decided that he would rely on his discretion um, noting that even though she was not statutorily excludable, he had a he could s he still has discretion. Even if you meet all the statutory requirements, the district district director has a discretionary um, ability to deny or grant. Usually, it's um, on the basis of of you committed some kind of a crime or something. His discretionary decision was that quote her writings go far beyond mere dissent. So essentially criticizing uh, our role in Vietnam, criticizing the treatment of blacks, criticizing the National Guard, um, and speaking positively about Cuba goes far beyond mere dissent and justifies your being um, told to leave. We're, we're appealing that decision. Um, and that's the case in which Penn has, has joined as a plaintiff uh, along with a number of other writers. When Margaret lost that case, she was, she was told to leave by October 29th, 1985. Obviously, she didn't. Um, they then had to um, institute deportation proceedings against her. And in those deportation proceedings, which are uh, a, a really a trial um, and, and was a, a, a four-day um, uh, hearing in El Paso, Texas again. We spent altogether too much time in El Paso, Texas on this case. Um, the, the government basically uh, was defending the district director. Um, they introduced 2,744 pages of Margaret Randall's writings. That was their evidence against her. One week before the trial, they subpoenaed from us all of Margaret Randall's writings. 
Um, we responded that um, she estimates that she's written 5,000 articles and poems uh, and books um, that have been published in 14 different languages around the world, and um, nobody has them all, least of all uh, her, since she's been traveling around so much. It would probably take a, a librarian, um, full-time librarian, a year to, to even compile the bibliography. The judge agreed with us, um, and we did not have to provide, um, in fact, any writings, but they were able to come up with 2,744 pages on their own. Um, they had clearly uh, carefully read um, Margaret's writings. In fact, um, these three Immigration and Naturalization Service attorneys in El Paso, Texas are probably three of the most well-read people in Margaret Randall's <laughs> writings around. Um, they didn't learn a lot from reading Margaret Randall's, um, for mainly because they were reading for a purpose. They wanted to find something that would fit the McCarran-Walter Act definition. So, um, and at the trial, what they did was they put, put Margaret on the stand, and they asked her all sorts of questions, you know, go, didn't you, did you or did you not write, you know, so-and-so was, was a great person in 1957, or, you know, and, and what did you mean by that? And um, they had clearly gone through her books, marking out those words that meant world communism to them. So wherever she said revolutionary, wherever she said Marxist, wherever she said Im imperialist or anti-imperialist, wherever she said atheist. They uh, put their you know, little red marking underneath it and asked her what she meant by that. They didn't listen to her answers. They weren't satisfied, though, with the categories that are in the McCarran-Walter Act. Not, they weren't satisfied with something as broad as the doctrines of world communism or something that seems that broad. So they decided to add one. And they argued that the, she should be held excludable not only for writings that advocate the doctrines of world communism, but also for not being, quote, committed to the good order and happiness of the United States. Um, this, this is actually a, a piece of our law. It doesn't have anything to do with the McCarran-Walter Act, but they were attempting to sort of bootstrap it in. Um, and then they threw the book at her, literally. Um, they focused a lot on El Corno Emplumado, which is a, a poetry magazine that Margaret and um, her then husband uh, edited um, out of Mexico in the 60s. And it was um, a cross-cultural um, poetry magazine that, that published a lot of uh, American poets for the first time in Spanish and a lot of Latin American poets for the first time in English. They um, went through th those poetry magazines very carefully um, and suggested that the following items in those, ma in those magazines should render her um, excludable from this country. There was a poem about Che Guevara. There was an issue which was dedicated to Cuban poetry. There was an advertisement for a book by Karl Marx. There was, um, there was this statement by, um, by another person close to Margaret that the magazine was, quote, a revolutionary weapon. This is a poetry magazine. Um, they spent so much time trying to figure out how this thing was a revolutionary weapon and how it was, uh, therefore, something which you should be excluded for. It had, um, it had a quote from Chairman Mao in there. That was uh, sufficient to exclude Margaret. Um, there was a dedication to Huey Newton. 
and we spent a long time on, uh, on what Huey Newton had to do with communism. Um, there was a cartoon that um, depicted the, uh, the, the police in this country in a negative way. That was considered to be something which should, uh, which should hold her excludable. And my favorite one was um, they asked Margaret about some poetry which was um, uh, quasi-communist in nature. Um, and she said, well, I published all sorts of things. I published pieces by Trappist monks. I published pieces um, by communists. They said, did you ever publish any pro-free enterprise poetry? <laughs> she, she, she had to answer no. Um, um, Uh, the, 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 the INS sort of, the INS attorneys um, followed all this up with a, with a wonderful post-hearing memorandum of 96 pages, um, which is probably the only federal government brief ever filed in which the second sentence is gosh. Um, it is, um, I, there are ex examples of it um, at, the, uh, at the table. There's a, a piece called Just the Facts, which, which ran in The Voice. Um, which quotes from the opening, uh, the opening pages, um, and it's it's about the most hysterical um, uh, style that you, that you you will ever find. Uh, the the beginning is something like Margaret Randall once wrote of Fidel Castro, then a quote from Fidel about Fidel Castro, then the sentence, "Gosh, Castro?" question mark Who in 1986 is sending? Um, sending armed militiamen to Nicaragua to train them in torture. Castro, who in Caligulan fashion is so and so and so. Yes, Caligulan fashion. Yes, Margaret Randall has perpetuated the myth and the lie, and so on and so forth. Um, it's also hysterical in content. It argues um, one of the issues in the case was whether her support for the Sandinista government rendered her a communist. And so we put in um, evidence from political scientists and experts in communism comparing the structure of the Sandinista party to a traditional communist party um, and finding that they were in fact quite different. Uh, and and um, they put in nothing. They assumed that since um, we don't like the Sandinistas, they must be communists. Um, they, having no evidence in their brief, they decided to, to create a doctrine called presidential fact, um, <laughs> which which um, is also in this voice piece, we, the, the, uh, the tenor of, of which is that um, if President Reagan says so, it is. And it is binding and conclusive on the court, and therefore anything that President Reagan has said on any of his radio broadcasts about Nicaragua is true. And the judge, judge didn't uh, buy that, but um, they did argue it. Then finally, there's the judge's decision, which came down on August 28, 1986. This is also an immigration official. He's an immigration judge. His, his decision is, is uh, actually quite surprising. It's in a way, it's sort of the opposite of the INS attorneys. Um, it's not hysterical. It's, it's quite calm and cool and, and uh, judicial, but it's empty. Um, it's empty on the content of the, the point at issue. He finds that the only reason that she has to be denied permanent resident status is because her writings, quote, advocate the doctrines of world communism. He has not a single quote from any of her writings to support his claim. 
he ignores the statutory definition of world communism, which is, this was written in 1952 when people had certain views about world communism. So they defined world communism. And they defined world communism in such a way that no one would advocate, not even a communist. So that it's, it, it's something like advocating the establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship um, in any country or all countries throughout the world through the means of an internationally coordinated communist conspiracy. Now, I challenge anyone to show me anything in Margaret's writings which talks about advocating the establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship. He just ignored the statutory definition. And finally, he, he also um, omitted any case support whatsoever for his decision. It's, it's basically an empty decision. He sort of followed the line. So you have these three, three statements by the INS. You have a district director who relies on his discretion, guided by the spirit of the McCarran-Walter Act, and decides that he can draw a line between dissent and beyond dissent. You have the INS who fixates on literal terms irrespective of their context and goes on to expand the definition to include anything against the happiness of the United States. And you have an immigration judge who virtually refuses to undertake any analysis of the act or, or the case at all. What none of these people did was deal with Margaret Randall as a person. There's no interest in who she is. There's no interest in what these decisions are doing to her life. There's no interest in her intent. And this, I think, is particularly ironic from a, from a government which, is, which says that w in constitutional interpretation, intent is all there is. But they ignored what Margaret said about what she meant by her writings. The McCarran-Walter Act allows them to do this, and it encourages them to do this because it is basically institutionalized prejudice. And what prejudice does is stop us from thinking and stop us from treating other people as human beings. And that's what the Immigration and Naturalization Service is doing in this case. Thank you. Before Margaret discusses her own case, uh, we want all of you to hear from Arya Nair, who was the vice chairman of the Helsinki Watch and the America's Watch. He lists himself just as that because he's so busy crisscrossing the world investigating um, the abuses of human rights and of freedom of expression everywhere that he probably hasn't had time to list himself as anything else. But he's one of the experts on the McCarran-Walter Act, and we're lucky to have him here. I should have introduced him before uh, David got up, but uh, if you give a writer a microphone, she doesn't read the program notes. And so I was just going by the order in which everybody was sitting. And I now want to turn this over to Arie. Actually, I think it was fortuitous that David Cole went first because he spoke about the 
the spirit of the McCarran-Walter Act and brought to life what can be done uh, given the, the spirit of the McCarran-Walter Act. I'm uh, going to give you uh, perhaps a little bit of information about uh, the act itself, and I won't so much discuss Margaret Randall's case as some of the other things that can also be done under this act. As you know, the McCarran-Walter Act was uh, enacted by the Congress in 1952. It was uh, vetoed by President Harry Truman, but it was passed by the Congress of the United States over uh, President Truman's veto. Uh, it's hard for me right now to think of any other uh, piece of legislation that is left over from that era that uh, has uh, uh, quite the same spirit as the McCarran-Walter Act. Most of the, um, the other legislation of that era, uh, the era we think of as the McCarthyist era, has fallen by the wayside. In part, the other legislation has uh, fallen by the wayside because it has not been able to uh, stand the test of constitutional litigation under the, the First Amendment. Uh, however, our courts uh, deal somewhat differently with uh, those who want to come to the United States and uh, what the United States can do to keep out uh, people that it doesn't like uh, than with uh, the way that uh, people can act uh, within the United States. And since the McCarran-Walter Act is, uh, is primarily a vehicle for excluding people from the United States, excluding people and ideas from the United States. Uh, it has not been uh, dealt with by the courts in the same fashion as most of the, uh, the other legislation from that era. Uh, David Cole uh, discussed the uh, provision of the McCarran-Walter Act under which uh, Margaret Randall is, um, uh, is litigating uh, at this moment. Uh, that is known as uh, subsection 28 uh, of the McCarran-Walter Act. Uh, in 1977, uh, the United States uh, Congress attempted to comply uh, with the 1975 Helsinki Accords, which are supposed to promote the free flow of uh, information and ideas across national borders by enacting something called the, McC the McGovern Amendment, uh, the McGovern Amendment is, uh, requires the Attorney General uh, to give a waiver to uh, persons who uh, have the ideological inclinations that uh, David Cole described, uh, unless the Secretary of State uh, says that it's against the national security of the United States to give such a waiver. Obviously, that's a, a fairly large loophole uh, in the McGovern Amendment, although there have been efforts uh, in the courts to make sure that the loophole is, is rather smaller. In any event, the Reagan administration in particular has not been stopped uh, by the McGovern Amendment because there are other provisions of the McCarran-Walter Act uh, in addition to uh, Section 28. Uh, they are provisions of the McCarran-Walter Act that were uh, largely unused prior to the, um, the advent of the Reagan administration, but they have been uh, rediscovered. Uh, in addition to subsection 28, there's subsection 27, a sort of catch-all provision, uh, which allows the exclusion of 
those who may be prejudicial or whose presence in the United States may be prejudicial to something that is called the, uh, the public interest of the United States. Uh, and the Reagan administration has been particularly active in invoking subsection 27 of the McCarran-Walter Act, saying that a variety of people um, would be prejudicial to the public interest of the United States if they were uh, allowed to come here. For instance, the, um, the naturalist author Folly Mowat uh, was excluded from the United States on those grounds. Uh, if he came here to talk about wolves, I suppose, which is what he writes about, um, he would be prejudicial to the public interest of the United States. A former NATO general, Nino Pasti, has been excluded from the United States under subsection 27. He's unenthusiastic about the deployment of uh, U.S. missiles in Europe, and the Reagan administration has confused uh, prejudicial to the public interest with prejudicial to the advancement of its policies, uh, and uh, therefore has excluded uh, General Nino Pasti from the United States. Uh, as if um, that uh, subsection uh, of the McCarran-Walter Act were not enough, uh, yet another subsection of the Act has been uh, invoked uh, in the, the last few weeks. Uh, on Columbus Day, uh, there was a uh, call in, uh, in my office from a uh, Colombian journalist, um, actually it was from her secretary in Bogota, a uh, Colombian journalist named uh, Patricia Lara. Patricia Lara had called uh, her secretary when she was uh, detained at Kennedy Airport, and her secretary had called around to a variety of people in the United States with whom she was in contact and called uh, our office at the, the America's Watch to report that um, uh, Patricia Lara was being uh, detained at uh, Kennedy Airport. Uh, that seemed uh, rather unusual. Uh, Patricia Lara is uh, one of the better-known uh, journalists in Colombia, a uh, reporter for uh, the largest circulation newspaper uh, in the country. It's actually a uh, rather extreme right-wing uh, newspaper, very supportive of the, um, the armed forces in Colombia. Uh, but she was being detained both under subsection 27, that is, her presence would be prejudicial to the interests of the United States, and she was also being detained, and this was uh, the especially astonishing thing, under subsection 29, which um, required that uh, the government uh, believe that she would be engaged in uh, terrorist activities or espionage if she came to the United States. Her actual purpose in coming to the United States was to attend an awards dinner at uh, the Columbia School of Journalism, uh, a dinner uh, in which awards would be given out to Latin American journalists. She is a graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism, a rather frequent uh, visitor uh, to the United States, had uh, visited the United States uh, several to Colombia, uh, the uh, State Department and the Immigration and Naturalization Service refused to provide her uh, or her attorney with any of the, uh, the grounds uh, for her treatment in this fashion. 
but then that, um, that important legal forum, 60 Minutes, uh, became uh, the, the mechanism uh, whereby um, her, the basis for her exclusion was uh, disclosed uh, about uh, three weeks ago. Um, Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Elliot Abrams, uh, went on 60 Minutes and described her as a terrorist uh, with the, um, the M19 uh, group in Colombia. He said she didn't actually throw bombs. He thought she had administrative duties uh, in the, um, the M19 and that she was a link uh, between the, um, the M19 uh, and uh, the, uh, the Cuban government. Uh, he did not uh, give any information on 60 Minutes uh, as to the basis uh, for these allegations, and uh, 60 Minutes, to its discredit, uh, did not ask him any questions uh, which would indicate uh, on what basis he, um, uh, he made these accusations. Uh, I know quite a lot of people who, who know Patricia Lara uh, very well, and uh, none of them uh, give any credence whatsoever uh, to the, um, the allegation that she is associated with the M19. Uh, what's more important, the Colombian government, uh, which is quite dependent upon the United States and receives aid from the United States uh, in the form of its foreign minister, issued a statement saying that it had uh, no basis for believing that she was in any way connected to the um, uh, the M19. Uh, the former president of Colombia, Belisario Betancourt, whose uh, presidency was ruined by uh, the M19's assault on the, the Palace of Justice in Colombia, has uh, just written the uh, introduction to a new edition of Patricia Lara's book about the M19, uh, praising her as a, uh, a courageous and intellectually honest and a brilliant uh, journalist. Uh, and the, the, the charge is incredibly preposterous, but it does illustrate one of the other uh, elements of uh, the McCarran-Walter Act. And that is that uh, the act in no way required uh, any uh, showing of evidence as to uh, these charges. Uh, and the forum in which the charges was made uh, was not a court, not legal papers, not uh, any presentation to her, not any presentation to her counsel, but simply a, um, a, uh, an attack uh, in the most publicized form imaginable on uh, the 60 Minutes uh, television program with no substantiation offered whatsoever uh, for the, um, the extraordinary charges. The appearance, uh, and um, I for one am willing to bet that the, um, the appearance is the reality in this case, uh, is that the State Department uh, was taking a beating uh, in terms of publicity on this case. There had been editorials and columns denouncing the exclusion of Patricia Lara. Uh, Senator Moynihan had gotten up on the floor of the United States Senate to say that the exclusion of uh, Patricia Lara made us a laughingstock in the world, uh, and the State Department uh, decided to, um, to take the offensive and uh, to come back at Patricia Lara, and uh, one of its notable hatchet men, Elliot Abrams, uh, performed the task uh, on uh, 60 Minutes. 
Uh, I hope you're going to hear more about this case, uh, but the, the act uh, does not really provide a great deal of recourse. It does allow, uh, it appears, uh, charges of this sort to be made without um, making it possible to examine the basis of these charges uh, in any forum. It'll, the lawyers uh, who are working for Patricia Lara are going to be doing uh, their best in order to make certain that uh, these charges um, are examined. But this is a, a terrible piece of legislation, a piece of legislation that um, allows the kinds of things that uh, David Cole described in the, um, the Margaret Randall case, allows the exclusion of the, the Nino Pastis, allows the kinds of things that were done in the, um, the Patricia Lara case. I would only uh, conclude by um, describing um, uh, one personal experience, and that is uh, a couple of years ago I, I went to, uh, to Yugoslavia uh, in connection with a, a human rights investigation. And um, I found that uh, the day after I got there, the Communist Party newspaper, Borba, had an editorial about my arrival to, uh, to look into this case. And the editorial led off by pointing out that I had uh, been much freer to go to Yugoslavia to, um, to look into a human rights case than any Yugoslavian would be to come to the United States um, to, uh, for any purpose whatsoever, given the, the McCarran-Walter Act. I think that the, the kind of, uh, of exclusion that is embodied in the McCarran-Walter Act uh, handicaps uh, anyone who uh, suggests that um, it is our business to try to promote freedom of expression in the world. It betrays uh, the insincerity of our own professions to, um, uh, to try to promote um, freedom of expression. Uh, and uh, the, the purpose or the, the drive to eliminate the McCarran-Walter Act to enact uh, the kind of legislation that has been proposed by Representative Bonnie Frank and others to get rid of this kind of exclusion is one of the urgent tasks for anyone who believes in freedom of expression in the United States and freedom of expression worldwide. Thank you. Thank you, Arian. And now Margaret's going to talk a little bit about her own case. First, I'd like to just say a couple of words of thanks to Penn for making this meeting possible and for all that Penn has done in my case and continues to do in my case and for so many other cases of writers and intellectuals throughout the world who face this kind of persecution. It's very important uh, in a personal sense I say that this with with a great deal of emotion, it's very important to feel that one is not alone in this kind of endeavor. For me, my case uh, really can be reduced quite simply to uh, one sentence. I'm someone who is being denied my family, my community, my place, the land where I grew up, because of my ideas. 
And one's place, one's physical place, one's family, in all the definitions of that, uh, large and small, and one's ideas are really, in a sense, what make up one's identity. And so this kind of a case is a great assault upon one's personal identity. And this is perhaps one of the things that I've had most to struggle with uh, in my life in the past couple of years. How in this kind of a situation does one relearn to work, uh, to mother, to love, uh, to plan ahead, to plan anything more uh, involved in next week's groceries. Uh, it's not always easy to do these things. This kind of a case, which is usually spoken about and very sort of generalized and, and, and um, political terms, when it's lived in the life is really reduced to very simple things. Um, and uh, perhaps less easy to speak about. This kind of situation then, which is quite uncentering, especially when it begins, uh, threatens one, or one finds oneself threatening oneself, in a sense, with uh, real self-censorship, which I think is uh, the worst kind of censorship in many ways. Uh, what do I write about now? <laughs> How do I teach my classes? Who is sitting in them? Uh, what do I say in a public interview or on a talk show? Uh, and I have attempted to make a decision for myself about those questions uh, to say that I will say everything I would have said. I will teach exactly the way I would have without this case, and I will continue to speak loud and clear the things in which I believe, whether or not uh, anyone agrees with them or they are thought um, or they are considered uh, as ideas which would exclude me from the place that I want to be. This kind of... Um, this intention requires, in many ways, a continuous daily renewal. Uh, because, of course, the psychological um, implications of a case like this are, are complex and, and very, very constant. Uh, but I think that one of the things that I have, that has also armed me with strength in this case, is the absolute refusal to say, I am sorry. I am not sorry for any of the things that I have said or written. Uh, I'm not sorry even for those things which I may not now not particularly agree with or would today perhaps say in a different way. And I think that it's very important to be able to claim for one's life the reality of process to me, process is a very important thing. And in this case, it's been difficult, but not impossible, to claim the reality of process without going back on any of the things that 
have uh, made me the subject of this kind uh, of situation. But self-censorship, as I say, which is always sort of a threat lingering out there in the wings, is, is very dangerous. It's dangerous for a writer. It's dangerous for a teacher. It's dangerous for an artist. And I think it's dangerous for all of us, essentially. Uh, it casts a chill on the free marketplace of ideas, which is certainly one of the fundamental premises upon which a democracy is built. And I think that it's something that we all have not only the responsibility but the obligation to safeguard. So at this point, I believe that there's really only one road that I can continue to travel in this case, which is to continue to take this on with as much dignity and strength as possible, not only for myself, not only for the other men and women to whom uh, people here have alluded in speaking of McCarran Walter, many other writers, many intellectuals, statespeople from other countries, but also on behalf of the American people, all of us, who certainly have a right to hear to listen to, and in fact to disagree with uh, ideas from all quarters, from all places. Uh, when that right begins to be taken away from us, uh, we are indeed in terrible trouble. So along with the uncentering nature of this case, along with all the daily kind of struggle that I've tried to very briefly describe to you, I do feel as well that it is in many respects a privilege to be in the position that I am in today. And I'm absolutely sure that in the most important sense we will win this case. Even if in the end I am forced to leave, that this particular struggle will be a chapter, a very glorious chapter in the efforts of many, many people, including all of you sitting here tonight to erase this kind of travesty from American law. That's really all I have to say. Thank you, Margaret, for sharing all that with us. I'm sure later on there'll be some more questions that everybody will want to ask you about this. Uh, as Penn has become involved uh, in, the, in Margaret Randall's case, uh, it's made us take a closer look uh, at other legal plights that American writers find themselves in. In the last few weeks, we had uh, evenings uh, with Peter Matheson and Joe McGinnis, both of whom are facing uh, lawsuits uh, for their works for very high stakes. Francis Fitzgerald, whom all of you know as uh, the author of Fire in the Lake about Vietnam, uh, of America Revised, about how our American history is being rewritten in the schools, and most recently, Cities on the Hill, 
uh, and she's the co-chair of the Freedom to Write Committee, is going to talk to you a bit now about uh, other implications for the American writer in this case. Thank you. I will be brief, but I was going to start by uh, uh, reciting the particular uh, part of the act of the McCarran-Walter Act on which uh, Margaret Randall is being denied a permanent residency status. Um, it starts this way. It says, aliens who write or publish or cause to be written or published or who knowingly circulate, distribute, print or display or knowingly cause to be circulated, distributed, printed, published or displayed or who knowingly have in their possession for the purpose of circulation, publication, dis distribution, or display any written or printed matter advocating, uh, advoc or teaching opposition to all organized government or the teaching of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you'd think that anyone who wrote that, uh, now I haven't even finished the sentence, um, <laughs> would not be someone who, uh, or uh, indeed an institution that was interested in writing. Um, in practice, it seems that uh, that our government is still extremely interested in writing, and I think, in, you know, in certain ways, uh, uh, this is a compliment to to uh, to writing, to to certainly to us writers. Um, on the other hand, uh, when you think about it, the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the case is perfectly illogical because, after all, Margaret Randall's writings um, exist certainly in the United States all over. It. Um, although certainly those 2,747 <laughs> pages of documentation exist throughout the United States government and her works are um, on sale uh, in, in, in most bookstores, I'm sure. So, you know, in some sense it's n it is not writing that's being attacked by the McCarran Act. It's the writer. Um, as uh, one of her attorneys said, uh, in one of one of the briefs in one of the cases, if Margaret Randall were a housewife rather than a writer, uh, this would be a simple case. She seeks adjustment of status on the on the basis of two immediate um, relative petitions by her husband and adult son. She has many family ties in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, indeed, she may be the only non-United States citizen in her entire family. Um, uh, but Randall is also a writer. And it is for this reason the, the, the INS is pre pressing for her deportation has, and has submitted thousands of pages of oral history, essays, journal entries, political cartoons, and poetry to this court. Well, uh, so uh, it's on the basis that, that writers must be excluded in their person. They themselves are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Uh, not because th they do anything else but write. They're not, they wouldn't be dangerous um, under their heading of housewife or, or whatever else that they do in their life. They're dangerous because they write. And uh, this, this strikes home to me uh, very much because um, I suddenly feel that as a writer myself, I may become a danger to the United States. Um, I'm not sure how because uh, after all, when you read the statutes involved here, and the prose is much worse than the one I just uh, read to you before, um, you will you will find that uh, that uh, uh, all kinds of things um, 
are, are uh, dangerous to the United States, um, including, uh, I think, advocating the international economic, international, or governmental doctrines of world communism, which is, as uh, Arya pointed out to me uh, earlier on this evening, could, could include the doctrine that um, children ought to be educated um, and uh, therefore would exclude all of us uh, if we were writers. Um, and uh, uh, this has been left, I mean, what, what the, the meaning of writer's words has been left to the judgment of, um, on one hand, consuls, American consuls in, in foreign countries, or on the other hand, uh, district judges, or on the other hand, um, rather lower level trial, trial court judges. And um, if you look through the trial record, as, as I have, you'll see most extraordinary literary questions being asked or posed by, by um, government attorneys, including what is a metaphor. Um, you know, and if they don't know what metaphors are, um, I suddenly the world becomes a very dangerous place indeed <laughs> for all of us, um, because uh, even those of us who are not writers tend to use metaphors from time to time. And and um, we too may become dangerous. Uh, reading this trial's transcripts, um, although I was aware of the McCarran Walder Act before, uh, I have I felt you know seriously and personally uh, threatened. Although um, the language, of course, applies only to quote unquote aliens. Um, but uh, as long as this language uh, is on the books, this this language which. Uh, talks about anarchists and all kinds of things, imaginations of the n instead of 1906. Um, as long as this language is on the books, uh, uh, we are, as Americans, are not free to hear from writers of other countries, um, uh, including very anti-communist writers who were often caught up in this thing because they, they had, a, you know, a, of necessity, a Communist Party membership in their background. Uh, you know some of the the the, the greatest uh, um, adherents of solidarity in Poland and so on have this party membership necessarily in their background, and so we are not free to hear from others. But furthermore, we 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 are constrained um, to uh, live in a country that that recognizes ideas as as a uh, source of danger to its very soul and. Um, I would think that, you know, I, I mean, it, it only can be true that the ideas are dangerous if they are seen to be so. And that's what we have to worry about. Thank you. Thank you, Frankie. Uh, I think everyone's going to want to uh, ask questions of the panel members and have a little discussion here before we have a reception. There'll be wine and things to drink and cheese perhaps back there in a few minutes. And um, the Penn staff is going to hand out some information on the Margaret Randall Defense Fund. They'll probably start doing that. You're gonna do that now or at, at the reception afterwards? Okay. So um, we'll take some questions.
Well, my uh, two of my children are American citizens. Uh, the other two may be. Uh, it's unclear at this point. My parents are both American citizens. My husband is an American citizen. Your, I have your brother's still alive, right? Yes. I have a brother, a sister <laughs> who... Uh, so at least, at least five people, right? Oh, at least a dozen people, yes. So <coughs> is it possible, is it right to say that uh, it's not only the case of uh, this democracy is in flaw, uh, is it, is it uh, right to say it's not only the question of uh, freedom of expression, but it's also the question of this so-called divided family, <coughs> divided by the war Yeah, I, I mean, that, that the Immigration and Nationalization Act, and particularly the permanent resident status part of it, is supposed to be about family unification. The purpose of it is to allow people who do have close family ties to stay here. And ordinarily, if you have one family member who is a, uh, an adult U.S. citizen, um, that's sufficient. Um, there are probably few aliens applying who have as many um, ties to the United States as Margaret. Um, and yet they, the government is saying that because of her ideas, she is going to be forcibly separated from her family. Mr. Eisenberg, what do you think about that? Do you agree? Do I agree with the Immigration Service? Oh, do I agree with Mr. Culp? Absolutely, yes. Well, there's two, um, there are two parallel tracks. Um, the, the district director's decision, which was the first one I discussed, is being challenged in a federal, an affirmative federal lawsuit um, in, in the District of Columbia, which is in district court right now, and um, motions are before the judge to, to decide the case, and he just hasn't decided the case. Um, there has been no decision there. And then um, a, a sort of parallel track is the immigration proceeding, in which we had this four-day trial, and the, and the immigration judge's decision came down saying that she was uh, excludable. And that is appealable to another um, a board within the immigration service and then to a federal court. And it's only when we get to the federal court that we can challenge the constitutionality of what they're doing. How long will that take? Oh, years, years, hopefully. None whatsoever. I was given a um, a year-long multiple entry visa, which is the mo the the most ample type of visa, the broadest type of visa that can be given, I believe, at a foreign consulate. That's right. Well, I didn't start working here under that visa. I, uh, I started working after I had uh, applied for residency and with authorization from the Immigration Service to do that.
dozens of committees across the country that have sprung up in defense of my right to stay here. And uh, there are also these other cases which have been mentioned and many other cases which have not been mentioned today. So there seems to be a movement uh, to re-examine and reevaluate McCarran-Walter and to change those parts of McCarran-Walter which uh, are virtually unconstitutional in this country. The, there are two bills before uh, before Congress. There is the Barney Frank bill, which was mentioned, and the bill in the Senate introduced by Charles Mathias, which I believe will be taken up by Senator Simon now that Mathias has retired. So there are two bills before Congress, and I personally, and I think everyone involved with this case, would hope that my case, as well as these other cases, uh, and all the work that is being done to make people aware of what McCarran-Walter is, because although it's been around for 35 years, I would venture to say that if we walked out on the street in New York or any place else and asked people if they knew what it was, most people would not know what it is, uh, to make them aware that this is in fact our immigration law and that it needs to be changed. And so, so yes, that is what we're most interested in doing, of course, is to, uh, is to add to a movement that already exists uh, and strengthen that movement so that uh, this law can be attacked uh, legislatively as well as in the courts. Do you want to say anything more about it, Larry? Well, um, only that there is a coalition of organizations, some 40 national organizations have joined in something called the Coalition for free trade in ideas, and uh, this is um, led uh, by the ACLU and the Fund for Free Expression, organized this about uh, two years ago, uh, and have been pushing this legislation and will be pushing it again in the new Congress. versus Mandel, which involved Ernest Mandel, who was a, um, was a Bel Belgian, I think Belgian, Marxist economist. Um, they held that when an alien is coming into the country from outside and is excluded on the basis of the McCarran-Walter Act, there is court review on the behalf of U.S. citizens who want to speak with that person, but the, the standard review is whether the, uh, is essentially whether the INS has cited the correct provision of law. It's, wh it's whether it's something like facially legitimate and bona fide reason. And a lot of people are litigating what facially legitimate and bona fide means, um, but for a long time that meant uh, virtually nothing. Margaret's case is, is a little different because she's in, she is here, and the, first, the Supreme Court has held since 1945 that the First Amendment protects aliens and citizens who live in this country. So she's protected by the First Amendment, whereas Ernest Mandel um, himself was not, and so her case more directly will pose a First Amendment challenge to law.
Well, there is, there is an argument in the case, which we haven't discussed here, um, because it's not, it's not the McCarran-Walter Act, but there is an argument that um, Margaret ha is still an American citizen, which would make the whole thing um, even, <laughs> even more ridiculous, but um, would also end the matter. And um, the argument is essentially that you can't loot, the government can't take your citizenship away from you. Supreme Court has held that citizenship is the preeminent right. You can only lose a constitutional right if you knowingly and intentionally and with full awareness of the consequences give it up. Margaret took out Mexican citizenship. She didn't give up her American citizenship with a in the way that nowadays you have to do it, which is you go into an American consulate, they read you all of the consequences of what's, what it's gonna do, including um, limits on your right to travel back to the United States to visit people who you um, presumably still have contact with. Um, they didn't do that with Margaret because the law had changed, but the implications of the law had not filtered down through the bureaucratic structure. Um, and it's, the same, it's basically the same thing as a guilty plea. If you plead guilty and the, the judge hasn't told, read you your rights before you do so, um, or, or Miranda warnings, if you, you know, you're arrested and, and you confess without the police having read you your rights, those are illegitimate, null and void actions. And that's what we're saying with respect to Margaret. If she's a citizen, you know, we have to argue she's a citizen. Um, we also argue that you know w whether or not she's a citizen, you can't do this to her. Any more questions?
Let, let me try that briefly. Um, yeah. Simply to Good say question. that um, obviously we can talk about the litigation itself as a way of trying to um, challenge what the government is doing, and we can talk about uh, the effort to adopt legislation to repeal the, um, the McCarran-Walter mm -hmm. Act. I think beyond that, um, what is always required in, in circumstances of this sort is simply that um, one tries to not engage in uh, what Margaret Randall described as, as self-censorship. That is, uh, one tries to, uh, to act as much as possible uh, as if um, uh, these kinds of threats uh, did not exist, at least in the sense of rejecting the threats and, and expressing oneself freely and holding meetings of this sort uh, so as to, um, uh, to express outrage at uh, actions of this sort uh, by the government. I was always very fond of a, a policy uh, that I heard about um, 20 or more years ago, uh, a policy statement that was enacted by a small public library uh, in a community in, in Rockland County, New York. Um, there were um, some censorship efforts underway, and the library board adopted a policy which uh, went something like this, that if anybody objects to any book in this library on uh, political, uh, social, moral, religious, or whatever other grounds, uh, the librarian shall deem that uh, it is likely that the book is of more than routine interest and will take steps to make sure that the library is adequately stocked. Um, I, I, I think that kind of, of spirit is, is necessary always in, in responding to efforts uh, at censorship. But it, it, your question does make one, one wonder if Margaret is uh, a scapegoat for all of us who held these views in the 60s but who somehow did not give up their citizenship, so the authorities who can't do anything to us or haven't been able to in the past suddenly have found someone that they can uh, really give a hard time to and vent their feelings on.
Well said. Yeah, that's great. Well, my, I, my sense, I mean, you can only guess, but um, my sense is that in the initial decision was um, was put, was a an El Paso bureaucrat, um, but that the but it is um, quite clear that at some point um, it was reviewed by higher ups in INS, and and INS has a huge amount of discretion in deportation matters. At any time, they can decide not to deport somebody, or they could decide not to deport Margaret, and the case would be over. They can always pull that pull the case back, and so they do review these cases, and uh, the INS general counsel from um, Washington. Has um, appeared in the in the public media fr um, frequently, defending the INS's position in this case. So um, it's you know it's they are it's they're behind um, the action. And my guess about it is I don't really believe that anyone thinks that Margaret is a threat. I think um, that the Reagan administration thinks that it plays well politically for them um, in sort of middle America to sort of play the patriotism line. Um, when they get on, when they get on um, the uh, the media and and try to defend what's going on here, they don't say Margaret Randall has written books which advocate the doctrines of world communism and therefore she doesn't deserve to live here. They say she gave up her citizenship. This country is about people who believe in America. She doesn't believe in America. She shouldn't be here. That plays very well. It's totally irrelevant legally, but it plays very well politically, and I think that's why. Um, they're they're continuing this case. It plays on people's prejudices and affirms their role as you know the the, the what America is all about. The the other thing that must be said that that um, uh, within a, a government that has shown its incompetences in various fashions uh, quite recently that that the INS must be said to be the least competent. Um, <laughs> service of, of all that you can actually think of. It's not entirely their fault, uh, but, th but they are really in totally inadequate to the task they have been asked to perform. And to, and, uh, to have them ruling on something like this is, is all the more astonishing. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't think I. I think that it is yes, for part of America's uh, way of expressing its foreign policy, and I think that my case is useful to them in that respect. But I don't think that these are opposing views. I think that it's all of this, you know, I and, and much more. I might add. I think that it's also has to do with the fact that I'm a woman, that I've written uh, books about women from other countries who uh, are not listen to. I think that my feminism comes to play here. I think that the, the patriot patriotism, false patriotism, I might add, because I think that when you love something deeply, you you can criticize it and want it to be as good as you think that it, that it can possibly be, so that I don't think that criticism comes from hate, as they would say, but I think it comes from love. And I think, yes, that it has a great deal to do about uh, with America, foreign, uh, U.S., uh, the current administration's uh, foreign policy with regard to Central America and so forth, as it did with, with as as it does in fact with the rewrite of, of history around the uh, uh, Vietnam War. I mean, today the Vietnam War is quite different <laughs> in 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 the media message than. I think that's that's hard to say in, in this respect, that if you um, look for people who are going to speak out in defense of the McCarran-Walter Act, uh, you don't very often find them. Uh, there are not that many people who will uh, try to uphold it, but then if you try and enact legislation to get rid of it, it gets to be quite difficult, and I think that uh, it's not at all clear whether the, the effort to repeal the McCarran-Walter Act will be uh, successful. Um, I think one of the things that happened in the, uh, the Patricia Lara case is that the State Department made um, a, an effort to save the McCarran-Walter Act by introducing this question of terrorism, which really hadn't been uh, part of the debate uh, over the McCarran-Walter Act uh, previously, uh, and uh, in, in many ways, um, uh, terrorism is uh, the kind of word today that, that communism was uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and if someone is labeled in that fashion, uh, the label is, uh, is a very destructive thing, um, regardless of whether uh, there is any substance uh, to, the, um, to the label. So, uh, the State Department is, is quite capable of upping the ante in the debate, uh, and it's not at all clear what, what will happen.
I don't know about the gender breakdown in terms of immigration cases, but I do know that the, uh, the line of questioning in El Paso at the hearing in my case was red baiting in the extreme. It was objectifying and it was also very womanizing. I was asked questions uh, that would never have been asked of a man. I'm sure that uh, had the man, uh, had it been a man, and uh, they would have found special questions for him as well. I'm sure that if I had been black or, or, or Hispanic uh, or Native American, that those. Well, I was asked uh, if it was true that I posed nude for an art class in 1950. Well, I don't <laughs> think that a man would have been asked that. Uh, I was asked if, uh, I was asked questions uh, designed to uh, make, to, to, to impinge in some way upon my morality because I've had uh, more than one husband and have had children by more than one uh, husband that kind of thing. I mean, it w there, w there was a constant sort of underlying and sometimes not very underlying, but very direct uh, reference to, uh, and it had all to do with this idea that uh, David mentioned, which was being against the good order and happiness of the United States. Presumably, if you've m modeled nude for an art class, you can't possibly have the good ha order and happiness of the United States at heart. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's sort of hard to put the pieces together, but uh, as a woman, I feel that uh, very acutely, yes. And, and I feel that it's a front to one's dignity uh, uh, to be treated in that way, at, at times also by the press. I mean, certainly not all the press, but uh, the kind of, uh, some of the, of, of the journalists who have written about my case have certainly wanted to dwell more on the sort of sensationalist aspects or what they see as the sensationalist aspects of my life than the, than the facts of the case. So, you know, one is used in that way to. Well, if there are no more questions, why don't we thank the panel and <laughs> applause. And let's all go back here and have, have something to drink. Thanks. Thank you all for coming.